Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King as we continue to celebrate Easter, 50-day season of celebration. And one of the ways we do so is with a sermon series on the mystery of faith, by which we refer to three statements that we declare as part of our liturgy. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Last week, we considered Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 15, and we looked at the cross and the ways that Jesus identifies with our suffering, the ways that he forgives our sin and reconciles us to God. And today, we'll consider Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his power over death. You can find 1 Corinthians 15 in your service leaflet on page 3 or on page 904 in your pew Bible, and there are some notes inside the back cover of your leaflet as well. My wife Mimi is a math teacher. Calculus, actually, is her favorite, and she enjoys taking concepts which are confusing to some and bringing clarity to high school students. I think Paul would have been a good math teacher, except I think he would have taught geometry. Does anyone remember proofs from geometry class? These sequences of logical short statements that build one upon the other until you get to the, the summary of the proof that declares the truth of the math mathematical concept. This is much like what Paul does in our reading from 1 Corinthians 15. He has a series of short statements. If this is true, then therefore this is true. Look down with me at our reading. Verse 12, now if, 13, but if, 14, and if, 16, for if, 17, and if. You get the point. If, 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 then, then, then. And why does he do this? He does this to show us what would be true if Christ were not raised from the dead. You might think, well, that's a funny way to start a reading. What was the problem? What was going on in Corinth? And the problem was denial. The problem was that in Corinth, some were denying that the resurrection of the dead was real. Now, what are the reasons that we might deny something? We might deny something because we believe in a competing claim, a competing worldview, a competing narrative. There are those in Corinth who may have doubted that there was life after death, or they may have believed that there was life after death, but it was only some spiritual life. It wasn't physical or bodily. They may have said, you know what? Then as now, people don't rise from the dead, the dead remain dead. Second reason some may have doubted is they may not have trusted or believed the experience of others. Our reading from last week, the verses that precede this in 1 Corinthians 15, tell us that Jesus appeared to Paul and to the apostles and to the disciples and to more than 500 others at once. And that eyewitness account got handed down to others. And so there may have been some who didn't believe those they may have dismissed them as subjective experiences and not fact. Or there may have been some that doubted because they felt like they had a superior knowledge of God's revelation. They may have said, well, I know that Jesus promised resurrection, but we've experienced a spiritual renewal in our inner selves, and that's it. There's no resurrection to come. We've experienced it here and now, and our hope is just in this life. Regardless of their reasons, those who deny the resurrection, as Martin Luther writes, must also deny in a lump the gospel and everything that is proclaimed of Christ and of God. For all of this is linked together like a chain, 
whoever denies this article must simultaneously deny far more. In brief, they must deny that God is God. Or to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if you deny the resurrection, then you must believe about Jesus and about his followers that they are either liars, lunatics, or that Jesus is who he said he was, the Lord, the Son of God. See, the resurrection is the linchpin. It's the hinge for Paul on which all else hangs. And if we deny what the Bible says is true, we go down a path of falsehoods and skepticism. We don't trust the claims of Scripture validated by Jesus' resurrection. We don't trust the experiences of others or the historical facts. And we don't trust God's revelation or his promises. It's a bleak picture that Paul paints if the resurrection is false. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no new life for us. Look down at our passage and we'll see how his logic flows. If there's no resurrection from the dead, he says in verse 13, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then Paul is misleading and God is misleading. The preaching is empty and our faith is empty. Like a hollow Easter bunny, nothing to it. No assurance of forgiveness. If the Messiah didn't die and rise again, no atonement for sin, no substitution, no payment. If Jesus didn't have power over death, then those who have died, even in the faith, are truly dead. And our hope is only in this life. This is a bleak picture. And Paul goes through eight of our nine verses in our reading to prove the point of just how bad it looks if the resurrection is not true. Later in the chapter, he sums it up like this. If the resurrection isn't true, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. No future hope, guilt instead of grace, and death has the final word. Christians are to be pitied because the whole chain of consequences, all of the benefits of the gospel, rest on it. And this is the logical conclusion when we deny the resurrection. It's the hopeless result when we deconstruct what scripture asserts is true. Now, when my wife Mimi and I got married, I learned two things. I learned at least two things, I learned many things in marriage, but there were two things that I learned as an actual part of the service. I learned that in the Anglican service of holy matrimony, you don't say, I do, you say, I will. Not quite like the movies. Secondly, I learned that when Mimi said, I will, it didn't mean that she took me just then and there in that moment to be her husband. It presupposed a whole lot of other things. It was a declaration that meant much more. The prayer book says, and my experience with Mimi has proved this to be true, that she took her husband out of reverence for Christ, that she honors me, loves me, comforts me, keeps me in sickness and in health. And that's a good thing. I've known it to be true because soon after we came together, I spent time in and out of the hospital, and the proof was in the pudding, as they say. Now, this doesn't mean that marriage is, is easy or for the faint of heart, but it does mean that I will is one of those declarations that we make that means much more than just the words. For Christians, when we declare Christ is risen, it means much more 
than just that the tomb is empty. Perhaps you've seen this quote before. It's one of my favorite quotes about the resurrection, and I would say from an unlikely source, that of Chuck Colson, political advisor to President Nixon during the Watergate scandal. He writes this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They wouldn't have endured if that weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. As Paul writes, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, the resurrection is not reasonable just because we profess it to be true. The resurrection isn't reasonable because we think we can explain away this astounding miracle of the power of God. But the resurrection is reasonable in a sense because it is built on events that actually happened, historical events. And because the resurrection is true, then this house of cards that Paul has built up with all of these if-then statements come crashing down. And because Christ has been raised, this long list of things which Paul declares are untrue. Because Christ has been raised, there indeed is resurrection to new life. Our preaching is full of life. There is forgiveness which gives new life. Our faith is actually full of life, not empty. And we have hope, not just in this life now, but we indeed do have hope. We have new life in the present. Scripture attests that we walk in this newness of life because Christ lives in us now. The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, offers his resurrection life as if a hand coming from the future in God's eternity reaches down into our present with his resurrection power. Jesus is both the model for us and the means by which we experience resurrection power. He's the model in that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep being one of the biblical euphemisms for death. So he is the first fruits. He's the first of more to come. In the ancient world, when they talked about first fruits, the first fruits were the first part of the harvest that was brought and offered to God in thanksgiving. And it wasn't offered in thanksgiving to God as if to say, thanks for what you have provided so far. It was offered in thanksgiving to God in anticipation of God providing in the future. Or as Paul, another word Paul uses in the New Testament, it was like a down payment. It's the word that Paul uses in Greek to describe the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's resurrection power by his spirit with us now, the power of the age to come brought to bear in our present. And we see this type of power and the work that it can do suggested in our gospel reading. We see it in these great reversals that we read about in scripture. Consider our gospel reading, it says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor will inherit. The hungry will be satisfied. Those who weep will laugh. Those who are hated will rejoice. God is at work through the outsiders, the outcasts, and those who feel like them. 
bringing strength and wisdom and salvation through suffering. This type of reversal, God's bringing of life into the places where you're experiencing death, is only possible because of his resurrection power. And so for you this morning, consider the places where you're experiencing things that feel like death, like weakness, like hurt, like failure, and hold those up to God, palms up. Now I think when we pray, thy will be done, when we offer things to God, that can feel a little bit like a death to ourselves, a death to our own will, as if we're giving up some of our life. But the reminder is that for a God who can be trusted and has our good in mind, is that we're not just giving something up with empty palms, is that those same empty palms are there to receive from God. And God, that hand from the eternal future, fills our hands, our lives with his power. Fills them with a foretaste, a down payment, the first fruits of what we will experience in the future. Forgiveness, where we felt the effects of sin. Grace, where we felt guilt. Reconciliation, where we feel division. I encourage you to hold out your hands in hope, not just hope for the future, but hope in the present. In 1 Peter, Peter writes that we are born again to a living hope. Present tense, in the here and now, we have a living hope. But he also writes that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, kept in heaven for us. For the future, future tense, a living hope now and new life in the future. And for us, the resurrection validates that what Christ accomplished on the cross is indeed true. Sin is forgiven, God has power over death, and we have hope in this life, yes, but especially in the world to come. And perhaps to counter what we can imagine might have been some of the reasons that people denied the resurrection in Corinth, I remind you what Scripture tells us about this new life to come. It is not a, a disembodied soul life where we are floating in the clouds as if strung up on some celestial hammock stringing, played, playing harps. This is a physical life. It was a physical resurrection. We will be in the new heavens and the new earth in a renewed creation. Our bodies will not just be these which we have now, which are, for many of us, feel like an old and worn-out garment, feel like the aches and the pains and the years of life have added up. No, these aren't resuscitated bodies. These are bodies made new, renewed, just as God will be renewing all of creation and has already begun. I think one of the most compelling visions of this new reality comes from the book of Revelation, and it describes this new reality that we will experience fully as being one in which there is neither death nor mourning, where the old order of things has passed away, and even tears are wiped away. You likely know the story of Lazarus from the Gospel of John, where this dear friend of Jesus and brother of Mary is sick, and they send word to Jesus, and he 
says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified. And he went on to tell them our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep. That same phrase. Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And in classic form, the disciples are confused. And John eleven fourteen says, So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Jesus knew the hope of resurrection life, here and now and in the future. And yet, when he receives the news of Lazarus' death, Scripture records in the, the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept. He knew the hope to come, and yet he wept. And so as we experience the pains, the grief from death in this life, we don't do so without hope, but we also embrace our humanity. We weep, we grieve. But the story doesn't end there. Four days later, Lazarus has been in a tomb, sealed with a stone, and Jesus shows up, and he tells them to remove the stone. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. In that moment, Jesus and his resurrection power have victory here on this earth, in this life, because Jesus is living, and Jesus is powerful. And in that moment, it's as if death works backwards, as if that which was sad comes untrue. And that's a foretaste, a first fruit of what we will experience when Christ returns and we get to enjoy the new life and the new hope that he has created us for. And because that stone was removed from Lazarus's tomb, we can be assured that the stone will be removed from our tomb, that God indeed has access to us. And because the other stone was removed, the stone that temporarily blocked Jesus' tomb, we can be assured that we have access to Jesus. Not his empty tomb, not just the grave clothes, we have access to the living God because Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah.